It has been said that the two most controversial topics of discussion are religion and politics. People feel strongly about those issues, and that is why conversations can often become heated or tense when, when opinions are shared or viewpoints are shared. As a result, there are those who say that you should be very careful about ever discussing either topic in public, and certainly the two should never be mixed. That is the conventional wisdom. When you talk about religion or politics, it is impossible to please everyone. No matter what you say, you are bound to get somebody riled up and irritated. Maybe that's why the enemies of Jesus, during the last week of his life, tried to trap him and snare him by asking him a question about religion and politics. That interchange is recorded for us in Mark chapter 12. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to that chapter. As we continue our way through Mark's gospel, we are in the 12th chapter this morning. So please follow along as I read verses 13 through 17, which will be our text of consideration this morning. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Then they sent to him, the hymn, of course, a reference to Jesus. They sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let me remind you that this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians, those groups that were in opposition to him, this conversation took place on one of the final days just prior to our Lord's crucifixion. Throughout his life, there were religious leaders and political leaders who didn't like what he said and didn't like what he did, but the intensity of their hatred reached a fever pitch right here at the end. The various groups who opposed Jesus were pressing and looking for anything and everything they could find to use against him to get him killed. And that is exactly what we see in this passage before us. By this time, they are desperate to get rid of this man who claimed to be their Messiah and who had such an influence over the multitudes. Right from the start, you will remember, he got under their skin. First of all, he had a forerunner who went before him calling everyone to repent. John the Baptist told everyone, people and leaders alike, 
that they were not right with God on their own. They were not right with God simply because they were Jewish, simply because they were part of the chosen people. They needed to repent of their sins. This was John's message, even to the religious leaders of the day. Matthew 3, verses 7 and 8 tell us that when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. That is, let me see it in your life. You're coming here for me to baptize you. I'm not going to baptize you unless I see in your life fruit that indicates you've really repented. As you can imagine, this message was very offensive to the religious leaders. They didn't feel like they needed to repent. They thought they were fine already. So they didn't care much for John, and it was certain that they wouldn't like the one for whom he was preparing the way. Because when Jesus burst on the scene, his message was the same as John's message. He called on all people, including the religious leaders, to repent. Jesus went even further by throwing the money changers out of the temple and cleansing the temple right at the beginning of his ministry. This infuriated the religious and political leaders of his day. From that point on, they were looking for a way to discredit him or disgrace him with the people. But as time went on, rather than discrediting him, he discredited them. He discredited them simply by teaching the Word of God with accuracy. Throughout his ministry, he taught people the Word of God. However, his teachings often contradicted the teachings of the religious leaders of the day. Therefore, they would frequently question him and take issue with what he taught and oppose him and get in these sparring matches or these arguments with him. They would oppose him and try to back him into a corner with their questions and their opposition. His response to this jockeying for position, if you will, his response often took the form of a question. He would say this, Have you not read what the Scriptures say? He posed that question in Matthew 12.3, Matthew 12.5, Matthew 19.4, Matthew 22.31, Mark 12.10. Have you not read? In other words, don't you read your Bible? Don't you try to find out what the Bible has to say about this? Don't you know what Scripture says about this subject? What a rebuke this was to the religious leaders of the first century who thought they were the experts on everything theological. The teaching ministry of Jesus showed them how far they actually were from the truth. So they were completely unable to discredit Jesus. When they weren't able to discredit him, they determined they would have him killed. Now this might sound bizarre to you, that these religious leaders of the chosen people of God would want to kill Jesus? That may sound bizarre to you because it's easy to assume that religious people would simply want the truth. That's why they're in religion, is it not? That's the assumption that's pretty common out there. 
That would be nice if that were the case. But the fact of the matter is that truth is confrontational to us when we want to believe what we want to believe. In fact, it's not even uncommon for God's people to turn ugly when presented with the truth. This is why in Galatians 4.16, Paul wrote to the Galatian believers and said, Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? I can't tell you how many times that verse comes to mind in various ministry situations. Have I now become your enemy simply by telling you the truth? Tragically, that happens all too often. I've seen this so many times through the years, and yet it never ceases to amaze me. It never ceases to catch me off guard. It never ceases to surprise me. Every time it happens, people, Christian people, get angry with you when you present them with God's truth, even when you do so as gently and and as lovingly as possible. I am amazed at people who sit here in church week after week after week, and then all of a sudden, something is said from God's Word that infuriates them. Or maybe it takes place in a Sunday school class, or maybe it takes place in a home Bible study, or maybe it takes place in a biblical counseling setting, or in a conversation. They can hear the truth and be comfortable with truth until it gets too personal. Then they react. They, they react by getting angry, or they react by walking out, or they react by leaving the church, or they react by bad-mouthing the church. Beloved, this happens on a regular basis, all the time. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that the religious leaders of Jesus' day reacted the way they did. We all, we all have this tendency which doesn't make it right, but we all have this tendency. So when we read about their reaction, it should be a mirror to us to cause us to check our own hearts regarding how we respond to truth that confronts us personally. In their case, they became so angry and so hardened that they actually determined to have Jesus killed. And they didn't blink an eye. So that brings us to our text this morning. Verse 13, Mark tells us, Then they sent to him, that is, the they would be all these leaders in first century Israel who are trying to trap Jesus, trying to get him. They sent to him some of the Pharisees, and the Herodians to catch him in his words. As you probably know, the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the ones who set themselves off from all of normal society to keep not only everything in the law of God, but everything in the scribal law. Their very name, Pharisees, means separated ones. So they were separated off from all normal society and normal people to be the religious elite, and yet they were the ones plotting to kill Jesus. When you hear that, you might say, hold it, how could, they, how could they be so blind? How could they not see what a disconnect this is? Listen, beloved, don't ever, don't ever underestimate the intensity of the anger that can come from people 
when you put their religion next to the Word of God to demonstrate the differences. Don't ever, ever underestimate the intensity of the anger that can come when you do that. And that's what Jesus had done throughout his ministry. He taught God's truth in contrast with the various religions of his day. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, he repeatedly made this statement, You have heard it said, but I say to you. When he made that comment, he was contrasting the religious teachings of the day with the truth of God. And let me tell you, it made the religious people furious. Furious. This still happens today all the time. This exact same thing happens all the time. I know because I get the angry letters, many of which are anonymous. I get the angry phone calls. Whenever I contrast popular religious belief with something in Scripture, and I don't, I don't do this intentionally, to, you know, out of my way, trying to take pot shots at, at groups. It's just when it's in the text, and it's so obvious and so clear what it's addressing. Whenever that happens, people get very defensive, especially if it's a religious belief from their denomination, their religious system, or their religious background. That's what happened in our Lord's ministry, and it ultimately led to his death. From a human standpoint, now we know in the sovereignty of God, Jesus was predestined to, the, to die. But from a human standpoint, you could say this. What led to the death of Jesus was his contrasting of popular religious views with truth. That's what led to his death. That is what got him killed. The religious people, especially the Pharisees, had had enough of the truth they heard Jesus teach. They were boiling with anger. They were seething with anger and willing to do anything to silence him. And that comes out in these verses. In verse 13, we read that the Pharisees and Herodians want to catch him. And when they had come, verse 14, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love people. What it means is you don't care about anyone's status. You don't care about their social standing. That doesn't matter to you. You just speak the truth regardless. So you don't care about any of that stuff. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. So is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? At first glance, you may wonder how these verses, verses 13 and 14, show the anger and hatred of the religious leaders. I said that a moment ago. I said, boy, these verses really illustrate how much hatred, how much anger they had toward Jesus. And you may read this and say, I don't see, I don't see Mark making any comment about their hatred, their anger. Well, that's because we don't live in that culture and we don't immediately understand who these groups were. But let me tell you something. A first century reader would have almost gasped upon reading these two verses. When we read in this count that the, that the Pharisees and the Herodians together came to Jesus, that would be like saying this. Let me think of some way to illustrate it. It would be like saying the right-wing ultra-conservatives went with a group of left-wing radical liberals to do something together. That's what's going on here. These two groups didn't mix. 
These two groups didn't have anything to do with each other. They were on opposite sides of the spectrum. They could not stand each other. The Herodians were the Jews of Israel who threw in their lot with Rome and opposed the Pharisees on just about every issue. But this was one issue on which they could agree, which shows how desperate they were to get rid of Jesus. They both detested Jesus. Both groups. Because he upset the apple cart, he challenged the status quo. The Pharisees detested him because he upset the control they had over the people religiously. And the Herodians detested him because he upset the control they had over the people politically. So the two groups, if you can imagine it, joined hands in a common cause to silence Jesus. And they figured the only way they could really silence him would be to destroy him. It would have been unthinkable to imagine that these two groups could have found anything upon which to agree. But they both agreed Jesus had to go. He had to go. Yet, they didn't want to come across too obvious in their attentions. So they tried to trap Jesus in his words to get him to say something that could be used to get him killed by the Romans for encouraging insubordination. And that is exactly what they are attempting to do in this situation. They want Jesus gone, but they are Jewish people, and they know that Rome did not allow them to carry out capital punishment, so they want to somehow manipulate things to get Jesus in trouble with the Romans so the Romans would kill him. Then they could get rid of Jesus and blame it on the Romans. That's what they're doing here. But first they tried to set him up. They said this here in verse 14, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. You don't care about anyone's status or position. For you do not regard the person of men. That last phrase literally reads, You do not look at the face of men. In other words, Let me just put it in common language for us to understand. They were saying, Jesus, we know you aren't a people pleaser. You aren't a respecter of persons. You don't look to see who a person is and then determine if you'll shoot straight with him. You don't do that ever, Jesus. You just always shoot straight. That's what they're saying. Jesus never, ever looked at a person and determined, well, can I really say the truth here or not? No, he never did that. So they were accurate in what they said about Jesus. He always spoke the truth, regardless of who was the audience. But the reason why they said that on this occasion was because they thought they had figured out a way to ask Jesus a question that would get him in trouble. They thought they had come up with a question that Jesus would have to answer dishonestly if he wanted to get around the issue. So they reminded him, in a not-so-subtle way, they reminded him that he always spoke the truth regardless of the consequences. And if he did in this situation, they just knew it would put him at odds with the Romans and lead to his arrest, maybe even his execution. So you can see what they are doing. They are scheming. That's what they're doing. They're scheming. In one sense, it is remarkable that they don't seem to be bothered in their consciences that they are scheming. I mean, these are the religious leaders 
of Israel, the religious leaders of the chosen people of God, and they're scheming to get Jesus killed, and it doesn't seem to bother their conscience. If you have a hard time understanding how that could be taking place, then ask yourself how it is that you and I can do the same thing when we get angry. We all do this to one degree or another, or in one way or another, maybe not to this extent. But when we get angry, we scheme. We try to figure out how to make the other person pay. We try to figure out how to hurt the other person. We, we try to figure out how to get back at that other person. We try to figure out how to get the person in trouble. And it may be our spouse or children or our parents or a co-worker or a neighbor or spiritual leader. But we all scheme unless by God's grace we put a check in our lives. Unless we put a check on our hearts, a check on our attitudes. So my point is this. We don't really have any room to look down our noses at these people. We don't have any room to cluck our tongues at these guys and say, oh, how could they do that? Religious leaders scheming in that way. What we do is just as wrong as what they were doing. Our scheming may not be as blatant, but it's just as real. They were scheming. And they thought they had come up with a dandy. I mean, one that was impossible for Jesus to get out of. He, he, he had no room to maneuver. They asked the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 15, that opening phrase, they said to him, is it, shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now understand something. This question, if you can immerse yourself back into the first century, this question did pose a real dilemma. Let me explain it to you. The Romans were in control of the world at this time, and they were occupying the nation of Israel. To finance their occupying armies, the Roman Empire required the Jewish people to pay a poll tax. The poll tax was one denarius, which was one day's wage for a Roman soldier. The purpose of this tax was not only to finance the army, it was also intended to make the statement that Rome owned the people whom they had conquered. Well, as you can imagine, the Jews detested this insinuation because they viewed themselves and their nation as being owned by God, not owned by the Roman Empire. So that's why they posed this question to Jesus. Think about this. If he said it was wrong to pay taxes to Caesar, that's one option. If he said it's wrong to pay taxes to Caesar, the Herodians could turn him into the Roman government for treason, and they would arrest him and maybe even kill him. On the other hand, if he said it was right to pay taxes to Caesar, the Pharisees could spread the word to the Jewish nation that Jesus was disloyal to God and disloyal to the Jewish people. The result would then be that the people would turn against him and view him as a traitor or view him as a coward who was unwilling to stand up for the Jewish people against Rome. So this was a sticky situation. Anyway, you answer. If Jesus said, no, it's wrong to pay taxes to Caesar, his freedom was on the line, probably his life was on the line. 
If he said, yes, it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, his credibility was on the line and his ministry was on the line. It seemed as if he was in a no-win situation, no matter how he answered. And Jesus knew what was going on here. At the end of verse 15, we read, But he, knowing their hypocrisy, and by the way, Matthew not only tells us that he knew their hypocrisy, but he actually called them hypocrites. Mark doesn't include that little detail, but he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, You hypocrites, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. You see, Jesus knew exactly what was going on with their question. We don't know with certainty how he knew because there are a couple possible explanations. Let me mention them. One possibility of why he knew was, one possibility is that he was enabled by the Father to use the omniscience that was his by nature. During the incarnation, Jesus did not use his attributes of deity unless the Father directed him to do so. That's why he continually said throughout his ministry, he only did what the Father told him to do. He did exactly what the Father told him to do. So there were times when it seems from the gospel accounts that he accessed and used his attributes of deity as the Father willed, but most of the time he lived like any other man. He lived just like a normal human being. That leads to the second possible explanation for how he knew what was in their hearts, and that is the fact that he had been around the block with these guys many times through the years. He had been in these altercations, these debates, if you will, these arguments. He had been in these many, many times. Almost every time he came to Jerusalem, this ended up happening. He had many experiences from which to draw to know what was going on behind their question. Furthermore, think about this. When he saw the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together, he had to know that something was amiss by that highly irregular combination. So either way, whatever explanation you want to give, he knew what was in their hearts, and he let them know that he knew what was in their hearts. He said, if you blend Matthew's account and Mark's, you hypocrites, why do you test me? He knew this wasn't a genuine question seeking for a helpful answer. They weren't confused about this issue and looking for some enlightening input. No, they were testing him in the sense of trying to trap him, trying to ensnare him. That's why he referred to them as hypocrites. This wasn't, please understand, this wasn't childish or malicious name-calling by our Lord. He didn't go around calling people names. That's not why he said, you hypocrites. That was actually shining the spotlight on the actual condition of their hearts. It should have been an attention-getting and soul-searching shock to them to hear Jesus refer to them as hypocrites. It should have gotten their attention, but they were so hardened by this point that nothing would get through to them. So Jesus proceeded to answer their question. Verse 16, Jesus said this to them, So they brought the coin... And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. As I mentioned earlier, this particular poll tax was paid by a denarius. Had to be paid by that specific coin. 
A denarius was a silver coin that had an image of the emperor's face on one side of the coin. And on the other side, it had an engraving of him sitting on his throne in priestly robes. So that was the denarius. Caesar's, the emperor's face on one side, and the other side had an engraving of him sitting on his throne in priestly robes. As you can imagine, the Jews considered images like that to be idolatrous and thus highly offensive. So that meant that this particular tax was doubly heinous to them. For one thing, they hated paying any tax to the Romans who were occupying the land of Israel. And secondly, they detested the idea of having to pay this tax with a specific coin that in their view had an idolatrous image on both sides of it. They didn't want to touch the coin. They didn't want to hold the coin. But surprisingly, at least surprisingly to me, when I stop and think about it, maybe not to you, but surprisingly, there was a sense in which Jesus didn't have a problem with either aspect. We'll see that in just a moment. To make his point, Jesus asked them a question. He said, whose image and inscription is this? So he's holding the coin, and he points to it. Whose image and inscription is this? It's doubtful that Jesus was asking this question because he didn't know whose image was on the coin. After all, we know from a passage back in Matthew 17 that Jesus did pay his taxes. Jesus did not resist the government, Roman or Jewish. He paid his taxes, and he taught his disciples to pay their taxes. And in fact, in that passage in Matthew 17, he specifically zeroes in on Peter. And it makes you wonder if Peter, with his personality, had the tendency to say, listen, these bunch of idiots, these losers in government, they're misusing our money. We're not going to pay our taxes. That's just a waste of money. And Jesus, if that were the case, made it clear to Peter that's the wrong approach. No, that is not right. You pay your taxes. So if he had paid this, Jesus had paid this tax, which undoubtedly he did, he would have done so with a denarius, because that's the coin you had to use. Thus, he would have known whose image was on the coin. It's not why he's asking the question. He's asking the question to drive home his point. He holds the coin up, points at it. Whose image is this? Whose inscription is this? Verse 17, or verse 16, they said to him, Caesar's. And then verse 17, Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. What a brilliant response. Jesus was saying that the coin is Caesar's anyway. It's his money. It's his inscription on it. It's his image on it. So there's nothing wrong with paying the tax to Caesar. Not only that, Jesus was also reaffirming the appropriateness and the responsibility we have to pay our taxes to whatever government is over us. Jesus never incited or suggested revolution, even though he had many opportunities to do so. In Matthew 17, the passage I alluded to earlier, he taught his disciples to pay taxes to the Jewish authorities who were over them. And here, he taught the appropriateness of paying taxes to the Romans who were over them. Beloved, this is our God-given responsibility. 
We are to pay our taxes to whatever government authorities that are over us, whether they be state or federal or whatever. Now, we don't have to pay more than what is required, so it's proper to use all the legal deductions at our disposal and do everything you can to get your tax rate down, but we do have to pay what is required. That is what Jesus taught, and that is what his disciples eventually taught, as I'll mention in a moment, and realize Jesus didn't teach this because he was afraid of standing up to authority when necessary. Jesus wasn't afraid of anything. He wasn't afraid of anyone. So that's not why he taught his disciples to pay their taxes. He taught them to pay their taxes because that is what is right before God. As you well know, Jesus rebuked both Jewish and Roman authority when it was necessary, so his motivation for saying these things was not fear. Whatever you do, don't try to dismiss his teaching that way. Oh, he's just afraid, he's compromised. No, that wasn't the issue. The issue is that God has ordained and called his people to be exemplary citizens by obeying the governments that are over us and by paying our required taxes. It is so sad, so sad how many times the Lord's reputation has been tarnished by Christians who think it's okay to fight the government, rebel against the government, and refuse to pay taxes just because the government isn't acting in a godly way. Beloved, understand something. Neither the Jewish authorities nor the Roman government functioned in a God-honoring way. But Jesus didn't use that as a justification to revolt and refuse to pay taxes. He consistently taught his disciples that this was a God-given responsibility. And let me tell you something. They got the message. You want to know how we know they got the message? Just listen to what Peter would write years later in his first letter, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15. Listen. He says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Did you catch that? For the Lord's sake. That is, if you claim to be a Christian, you're representing him, and you are not a good representer of him if you are a criminal, lawbreaker, ending up in jail, telling everybody you're a Christian, but you're not going to support the government because it's so vile. Please do all of us a favor and don't tell anyone you're a Christian, okay? That doesn't help the cause. This is for the Lord's sake. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good, for this is the will of God. Did you hear that? For this is the will of God. How did Peter know this was the will of God? Because that's exactly what Jesus taught. This is the will of God. Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We have a responsibility, a God-given responsibility to our government. But Jesus didn't stop there. Masterfully, he added this, and to God the things that are God's. What an indictment that was. I mean, these Pharisees and Herodians weren't doing that. God wasn't first place in their lives. God wasn't central in their lives. Their lives didn't revolve around God and honoring Him and obeying Him. Not at all. Not, a, not, not even remotely. So this was quite an indictment. They weren't giving to God the love and the obedience and the service and the honor that is due Him. They had their own agenda. 
And they were too busy with all of that to render to God what is due him, to make sure that God is in the right place in your life. They already had so much on their plates that they were unwilling to render to God what was due him. So this statement was just as much of a rebuke to them and a correction to them as the statement about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. They weren't giving God the love, the obedience, the service, the honor that is due him. They weren't giving God the place that is due to him in your life. And let me tell you, they knew it. So Jesus' statement left them speechless. The end of this verse says, the last little phrase says, and they marveled at him. And Matthew adds this comment, that they left him and went their way. What could they say? They knew he was right. They had come to trap him in his words and to paint him into a corner, but his answer ended up painting them into a corner. They knew he was right, that they were in disobedience to God by refusing to uh, respond to their government in a proper way, and they knew he was right in that they weren't giving to God what was due him. They, they knew Jesus had nailed them perfectly accurately. He showed them that their hearts weren't right because they resisted God's will for them to render under the human government their submission and their taxes, and their hearts weren't right because they weren't giving to God the place and the position and the love and the obedience and the service and the honor that is due him. So they marveled and left him and went their way. Now think about what that says. It's easy for us to read that and say, oh, finally they left Jesus alone. Finally they marveled and they, they went their way and, you know, he could move on, wipe his hands and move forward with what God wanted him to do. But that's not the right way to see this. When it says in Matthew's account that they left him and went away, that is unspeakably tragic. That is indescribably tragic. They had just heard brilliant, insightful truth from the flawless Son of God, yet they walked away without any positive response and without doing anything about what they heard. And how often do we do the same thing? Maybe some of you are going to do the same thing this morning. You know that you are not giving God the place in your life that you should give him, the position, the love, the obedience, the service, and the honor is due him. You know that. You're well aware of that. But you don't intend to do anything about it. Nothing. You are going to walk out of this place and make no changes in your life whatsoever. I appeal to you. I urge you to respond to the truth of God's word as spoken by Jesus when he said, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Whatever you, whatever you need to do in your life to give God the love and the obedience and the service and the honor and the place that is due him, do it. Don't be like these Pharisees and Herodians and be in awe of what God says, and then walk away doing nothing. Don't repeat that. Let's bow together as we close. 
And as you bow your head in closing, I would please appeal to you. I would beg you to give thoughtful consideration to what you have seen and heard in the Word of God this morning from the teaching of Jesus himself. What he had to say about our responsibility on a horizontal level to human government, but what he had to say even greater about our responsibility to God on a vertical level. Our responsibility to give him, to give God the place in our lives that he deserves, the position, the love, the honor, the service that is due him. Are you rendering to God the things that are God's? Or like the Pharisees and Herodians, you just have too much on your plate already, too much to do that you just really are unwilling or don't have time to think about it. Don't leave here unchanged like the Pharisees and Herodians. Father, we are always amazed when we consider the Lord Jesus, when we watch what he did, when we observe the way he acted, when we see how he reacted, when we hear what he said. It's always, always startling in a, in a, in a positive sense. It's always tremendous just to observe him and hear him and listen to him. And as we have seen this morning, this confrontation right at the end of his life, how, how masterfully he handled it and how brilliant, brilliantly he answered, it's, it's, it's a response of awe that we have, amazement. But we don't want it to be an idle awe or idle amazement. We want it to be a response of action so that, Father, where we are not giving to you the place in our lives that you deserve, the position, the love, the service, the honor, that you would show us, make it clear to us, so that we would change, so that we would change. Father, speak to each of our hearts individually because we're all at different places in life and all in different places in our relation to you. So speak to our hearts as you see the need of our lives, and may we respond. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.